a real conversation and some hard truths. Gangs, drugs, and guns, giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Hey everybody, welcome back. Nathan Romas with you. Today, we got a big talk on technology in policing. For that, I have Ron Anderson on the show. Ron is the Chief Innovation and Technology Officer for the Edmonton Police, where he oversees the Innovation and Information Bureau. Ron previously served as an Assistant Deputy Minister for the province of Saskatchewan's Ministry of Corrections and Policing, and was on the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police Information Communications and Technology Committee for 16 years. Ron also works as a board member uh, for the Missing Children Society of Canada. So welcome, Ron. Thanks for having me. Um, Before we even start, I was going to ask, because just looking at all those names was hard to say. Uh, When people ask you about your background, can you actually remember how to say half of these names? Yeah, I'm a little old and long in the tooth, so I, I can remember most of those things because I was on them for a fairly long period of time. <laughs> working in technology, we have acronyms for everything, just like you have in policing. So uh, I guess, yeah. I get used to mine. <laughs> yeah, I was just looking at some of these. I'm like, okay, they got to tell some of these government agencies, like, no more than three words. That's all you get. So, um, but we'll get to talking about you and just kind of start with some of your background and, and give people an idea of how you got into uh, all this tech side of things and um, maybe some of your education, if, if that's a component of it. Yeah, I'm a Saskatchewan born and raised up until the last few years here. Um, I came from a small town in Saskatchewan and then we moved around a few times while I was growing up in school. My original plans uh, was to graduate high school and go to be a lawyer. So I uh, spent two years of commerce law and I figured it out real quick. I didn't fit in with the, what I called the khaki mafia at that time in the early 90s. It was Packing pants and button-up shirts at the uh, law uh, college of law. Uh, so I left that, and uh, all that time uh, through high school um, and through, through my university time period, there I had been working with computers. I, I got my first computer probably when I was six years old, a Vic Twenty, um, and I always had upgraded technology growing up. But it never occurred to me that might be a, a career pathway. Mm. So after leaving uh, university, after two years. Uh, um, I did a few odd jobs, with, I call them hairnets and name tag jobs, uh, old meat door to door. I uh, managed video stores, but I did go back to school for technology. Uh, and I ended up being hired by the school uh, after my first graduate, first class. They hired me to teach that class right after I graduated from it. So I was studying and I was teaching at the same time, which gave me some skills around public speaking and learning how to interact with uh, groups of people in large crowds, which I think has done me well over the course of my career. But I got my certifications in Microsoft networking. I got it in uh, computer hardware. I got it in uh, certified trainers, so the ability to teach those other pieces. Okay. And that kind of led into the technology path, as it were. Very cool. Well, so, okay, so you're not like, you didn't just kind of dabble in this. You've been in this your whole life. Uh, I was going to ask, what video store did you work at? Well, they're gone now, but it was a family video. It was a family-run chain in okay. Saskatoon. Back, um, the Geniac family owned about five stores. Uh, and they got bought out eventually by somebody right before Blockbuster decided to come in and take things over. But mm-hmm. uh, great job, love that one. Following my uh, my educational piece, I ended up working in the city of Prince Albert, and then worked my way into the Prince Albert Police Service after a bit of time there. So that's sort of how I got into the justice side of the house. Okay, yeah, and so you started off in Saskatchewan, and what were you doing there as like an assistant deputy minister? Was was there something that kind of precipitated that or is that where you kind of jumped in yeah so be- before getting to the government of saskatchewan i was uh, i was a it manager essentially for the prince albert police service for about 11 years mm. that's how i got into the policing and justice side of technology uh i was fortunate enough through that position to be trained through the saskatchewan police college and all the police leadership courses so the management uh, uh policing management and those pieces they also sent me to the canadian uh, police college in ottawa for uh, strategic and tactical crime analysis and some other management courses. So um, I like to say I'm about as close to being a cop as you can as far as my training goes without having a gun and a taser and all the other uh, special <laughs> powers that come with it. Um, so a lot of my management style, a lot of the way that I interact with others, in, particularly in the police service where I work now, uh, is based off of the police training that I received over those years. Okay. So uh, 
moving from the police service into the government in Saskatchewan. I had an opportunity there. I actually was hired as the exec director uh, level in charge of innovation for the justice, corrections and policing side of the house. And eventually promoted to the ADM role where I, I maintained the IT portfolio. But I also got all the nonprofit contracts. I got all the inter-ministry human services work with social uh, social agency, justice, uh, uh, education, health, and social services. So I got exposed to a lot of the, the inter-agency nonprofit work uh, through that side of my career there. Is that where you met our current chief, uh, Dale McPhee? Well, actually, I met him in Prince Albert when he was uh, the chief up there. So I was oh. working at the city um, when he became chief. And eventually, he brought me over to the police service, uh, where I applied, I guess, uh, to, to work at the police service. So that's how I got into the policing side of things. Okay. All right. All right. Um, so have you ever thought about like doing anything different, or you always wanted to be in kind of the law enforcement realm when it comes to the technology? Like you never had aspirations to go work with Microsoft somewhere else or, or any other company? You know, I, I've had calls uh, over the course of my career, particularly, you know, when you, when, you, when you get to the ADM level or something, your name is out there a lot more on LinkedIn and the other things like that. So I've had discussions with private corporations. I like the justice side of the house. I like mm-hmm. the policing side uh, of the tech industry. I think it's always an interesting space to be in. There's, there's lots of meaty subjects. I also seem to think my personality and my management style fits really well in a police <laughs> that's different from a lot of the tech uh, management styles. If you go to a private sector or you go to some of those bigger companies, it is a different culture, a different style. Yeah. Uh, I, and I also think I'm doing something that means something to myself, um, where I'm helping for community safety and I'm helping officers in their day-to-day work. That means something to me and it always has. Yeah. Well, and those are going to be some of the topics we're going to get into here. Um, maybe we could kind of start with uh, one of them because you're, Right in this realm, body worn cameras. <laughs> and uh, can you maybe give us uh, a little bit of history on this? Because I think it's such a mishmash of where every service is right now. I mean, it, it's kind of spread out through the US, Canada. Some services have them, some don't. Some are still trialing. I think the biggest question always comes up that, that comes up is, you know, why aren't we, you know, if, if somebody wants us to wear them, why don't we just do what some other agency does? So, can you run us through a bit of the history for at least the EPS and then into what we're doing now? No, well, if it's okay with you, I'll start a little earlier than, yeah. than EPS. Yeah, give it. Body camps is important to understand where they came from and where they started. They started in the UK. They actually started by uh, domestic violence of investigators wanting to capture that first testimony or the first witness statement from the, a victim of domestic violence. What they found is quite often that victim after a period of time wouldn't want to testify because they, you know, they don't want to face the court or they don't want to see the accuser or, yeah. uh, or all those. So they started recording those original uh, witness statements from, from domestic violence. That was the original intent. And that's how it sort of came to be, if you will, as far as the body on camera goes. What happened was in the U S they got uh, brought to the U S originally in that sort of same model, but it proliferated mostly from the use of force questions, and the uh, George, George Floyd and those types of things in, in different communities. And then the federal government in the U.S. provided a large amount of grant money uh, to buy body cameras. So the proliferation in the U.S. happened very rapidly because the U.S. federal government paid a lot of the implementations. Hmm, interesting. A lot of those implementations um, were done because of that funding, but they weren't well thought out in some cases because it's not the cameras themselves that's the hard part. It's the what you do with all the video afterwards, the disclosure, the FOIP issues, all of those other pieces. But at the beginning, there were U.S. agencies that actually dropped their body camera programs for a while because they, they, they couldn't keep up to the volume of video they were handling. Technology back in the day wasn't necessarily the best yet. Um, and Canada, by and large, didn't get any federal funding, didn't get provincial funding for body cameras. Uh, so you didn't see the proliferation of the cameras being adopted in Canada. Yes. And by and large, our use of force is much lower than the U.S. as well. So there wasn't the public cry for them at the time. Um, to put them in place. So Canada, uh, in, in now and in the last few years, has started to see them come in, um, but they didn't have the rapid adoption that the U.S. primarily because of the federal funding piece. Okay. Well, where is it right now then? Because, I, I mean, we know Calgary has them, but I don't think everybody wears them down there. So Other frontline patrol officers do their tactical do uh, as well. Not every, So when you say everybody, no. Uh, traffic does, patrol does, tactical does. 
Uh, you see the same thing in uh, Saskatoon has them out now um, on on their patrol officers. Um, there's different choices you have to make when you put them on an officer and the, the tasks they do. The biggest impact and most use for body cameras is traffic is probably the place where it's, it sees the most, I'll say, use from a policing perspective because every interaction you have involves an infraction. So you've got evidence on everyone. Not very often will every piece of evidence on a body camera be used in criminal investigation. Most of the time for a patrol officer, it's actually recording an interaction with a witness or it's recording an interaction with the subject after the event is over. So it, it isn't always something that hits court. Only about 5% of body camera video is actually useful in a court setting. Mm-hmm. You're, you're in a world where um, you're storing way more video than you're actually using for a, I'll say, a, a dedicated purpose like evidence in court or in the use of force questions. Yeah, well, and that's kind of one of the issues, I guess, that comes up is you know, you could record like say a 10 minute interaction, but certain portions of that might be privileged, uh, whether it's like they say something or say something about a lawyer or whatever conversation, or there's informant stuff that comes up. So now you have to have a person on the other end, chopping all this video up and figuring out what to do with that. And that's where the costs are. So when we, when we talk about, uh, body camera is actually really reasonably cheap device. You, you can buy a body camera for under $1,000, no problem. Uh, the issue is in policing, we have to store that for uh, at least two years, depending on the mm-hmm. file type, seven years, 40 years or indefinitely. So you can imagine storing a thousand body cameras for, you know, let's say seven years. That's, that's a lot of video every day. Then you get into what you raised on the redaction side. So if you have uh, somebody who's not involved in the incident in the background, you have to redact them out when you just you have privileged okay. information, you have to back that out when you disclose. If you happen to catch somebody's ID on the body camera or you happen to catch something sensitive on the body camera, you have to redact that. Really? If you happen to catch audio of a private nature coming over the radio from another file, you may have to redact that. So the, the real costs and the real effort on a, on a body camera aren't the camera itself. It's all that redaction that has to take place, whether it's for POIP or for a prosecution disclosure purposes. That's an insane amount of work. <laughs> like for, I think when we, I see in the news, some people argue, you know, they just don't want body cameras because they got something to hide. It's like, based on just what you told me, and I've never actually uh, knew all those parts before. I've never really been involved in the body camera discussion because like our unit isn't one of them that uh, has to wear it yet. But it just seems like such a disingenuous argument when people just superficially say, Oh, you're just trying to hide stuff. It's like, you know how much work goes into this? That's a crazy amount. <laughs> yeah, and then the business case, for example, for, for a service our size, to manage that back-end storage, the redaction, uh, and, and purging, because eventually you can't keep everything forever. You know, for a service our size, you're looking at 40 to 50 people. Manage that, because an officer, a average patrol officer or a traffic officer is going to capture, let's say, three hours of video per day. Mm-hmm. Uh, they take 20 minutes uh, at the end of the shift to, to mark, tag, and upload that. So you're losing about 20 minutes per day of officer productivity time. Matters that, And then you have the small army in the back end to do the reaction and disclosure pieces. And when an officer brings a camera back in, do they like physically have to plug it in and it downloads? Or is this all just Wi-Fi in the building picks it up? Now it's Wi-Fi. In, in the in, you know previous iterations of the cameras, it was you brought it in, you docked it, and then it would upload to the uh, um, to the storage. These days, it's all done by Wi-Fi. Uh, even when some of the cameras get a live stream LTE video off there to a command for emergent situations, all of those pieces. Um, so it is better. The technology has come a long ways in the last ten years. Uh, it's still and and I will be fair to the vendors that the, the technology for redaction uh, has has gotten a lot better as well as the the tools for editing video have become much more easier. Um, so, but we're still talking a large amount of time and staff, both for the officers and for the back end. Uh, I just know I can't even get my my cell phone to connect to the Wi Fi for more than like five minutes, or if it does, it doesn't let me you know push messages or receive push messages, and I'm. It's super annoying. So half the time I just turn the Wi-Fi on my cell phone off. <laughs> so I couldn't imagine now you're going to put, you know, gigs of data just jamming that through the same Wi-Fi. I guess you have to upgrade everything. Um, one of the things I want to ask too was just on the different technologies. So I know like Axon is a, a big one. 
I think that's probably the biggest brand name out there. There's a few other ones. Um, is anybody really leading the game on this side of the technology? Uh, is anybody really, you know, head and shoulders above the others? Yeah. So there's, there's a number of vendors and then you have Axon, you have Motorola, you have uh, various other ones that sell cameras and then come with, don't come with a back end system so you can have your camera and then have it your separate, your whatever back end you want to have or stand up in your own. Uh, different vendors have different strengths in our, in my experience. Um, you know, so if I look at the, you know, you mentioned Axon, so I'll mention them. If I look at their product where they've really invested heavily and, and have a very robust system is on that back end where the video is stored, where you redacted, how it's disclosed to the crown, oh. all of those aspects are, are quite mature in this day and age. Cameras, uh, the sort of the leapfrog game in the camera space, everybody's always coming out with a new camera with a new, better better imaging, wider lenses, um, better uh, on-edge compute. So if uh, you do different types of things in those cameras, um, they've done things that haven't been released to the public or haven't been released to the market yet. That, you know, they've said at this point, they're not going to do facial rec on body cameras. Uh, okay. the community. Um, you know, so that's a very contentious discussion. And at this point, that's not on there, but it is technically a possibility. Should that be something that, uh, the market goes to or that the police and the, and the privacy experts get to a point where we can all agree that it's okay in certain cases or whatever that looks like. Um, so it, it's a bit of a leapfrog game in the technology. Everybody's looking for the the next thing that's going to help make the officer's time and the redaction easier. So I think a lot of what you'll see in the body camera space is how uh, the AI type of things for transcription or for video analysis, uh, and those types of things will be built right into the uh, at the back end of the camera systems so that try and reduce the effort that it takes to manage them and redact and disclose so they can do uh you know even for the, for the purpose of report writing if, if we can use the a video analytics tool to help start the officer's report for them when they get back to the station maybe you can cut down their reporting time by 20 or 30 percent so those are the types oh. of things that will be coming next in my opinion yeah people would love that <laughs> you'll be a hero if you can cr create that thing um I didn't even think about the facial rec part. So you could just be walking around and essentially, you know, it tells you this person right over here is, this is who they are and they got criminal warrants, right? Like it could somehow notify you. In theory, that's, in theory, that's certainly a possibility. Yeah, you know, if you go to the UK and you look at their public uh, safety uh, camera systems, they have their they have mass number of cameras in the UK. And they there are technologies that run on the back end to do facial rec on those cameras and transit and things like that. That same same theory could be put in place on body cameras if it's uh, if it's something that's done properly. There's protocols around it, and it's only searching against, for example, wanted individuals. Yeah, and that's certainly an area where you have a use case. Yeah, I, I and I could 100 percent see where the privacy issues would come up with that, and people, you know, don't want their face getting sniped by a camera every two seconds, and for the thing they did wrong, you know, whatever ago. Um, well, and maybe on that, I'll ask just about the legalities of the the video. So you talked a lot about the redactions that you have to do if people are in the background and, and ideas captured. Uh, where is that argument right now? Like how this video is getting used in court and I guess charter of rights issues um, and, and arguments. Um, are we still in like really figuring this out phase or is there a lot of case law now? Ultimately, it relies on on regular video case law, more or less, as far as being evidentiary. So, if it's if it's germane to the incident, you have to disclose it through Cinchcom, which is just like anything else. Mm -hmm. um, the the issues around redaction and those pieces are are more about sensitive information. They're about individuals who are not part of that investigative file that may be captured in the background. So, uh, if you had a domestic in a house and there's small children in the background of that image, you'd want to black out. Or, or redact, you know, blur or whatever that may be, the children out of that particular item, things like that. Um, and certainly, I think the bigger issues come when it comes to the FOIP question. So, what can be FOIP, what can't be FOIP, uh, how the redaction is done on that, all of those uh, those pieces. In the U.S., there's been um, states that have a very loose FOIP law. So, uh, Oregon, for example, is a, is a state that has um, a fair. I won't say loose. It, it's expected that body camera will be available to the public through a FOIP request, for example. So the police there have been hit massively by FOIP requests. In other jurisdictions, the FOIP laws are different and it hasn't been so bad. So in Canada, 
Um, by and large, the FOIC pieces, are, I think the legislation is actually pretty good here. Um, if there is going to be a release, um, we follow the legislation as we have to. But it is about respecting both the officer's privacy because there is privacy for the officers involved as well, but there's also the individuals there. So uh, I can't just go and FOIP an interaction about you. You dealt with an officer if you were a, you know, a victim or an offender. Uh, third party, I can't request that. But if it's okay. me on, I want to copy my video, then I very well may be able to FOIP my own video. Those types of scenarios. So it, it follows essentially the same laws. It's just another type of data or another type of video that's subject to those practices. Well, that's interesting because, yeah, you bring up a, a good point there, the third-party complaints. So like, people can put in third-party complaints. We get them all the time, but they might not be able to get the video side of it. Well, the, the, you can put in a complaint. So if I put, if I was a citizen and I put in a complaint on an officer, that doesn't mean I get a copy of that video if I'm not the subject of, a, hmm. of the incident. So it would go to internal investigations. It would be investigated or it would go somewhere, uh, you know, like the province to do their investigation depending on the scenario. Uh, but that doesn't mean you're going to get a copy of the video. It, yeah. You know, the same rules apply to this as anything else in the same process. Okay. Um one thing I was going to ask too is like, so, you know, most cameras are kind of just mounted center of chest. And I, I don't know, when I watch half these videos, all I see is people's arms in the way. <laughs> uh, are there any other technologies? Like, is there anything like if somebody has glasses, they can put it on? Or is there any other development of where we can make this better? Yeah, I've been to a couple of the vendors, uh, I'll call them innovation shops, and uh, CES is another good place. Our Consumer Electronics Show in Vegas uh, is another place where you see what's coming, not just in body cameras, but in camera tech by and large. Uh, there are glasses-mounted things. They haven't really taken off because they're still a little little bit bulky. Uh, there were, uh, at one point, there were ones that were on hats that were tried. Uh, I've even seen a little shoulder-mounted drone uh, where the officer gets out of the car and a drone flies up behind provide situational awareness. <laughs> that would uh, scare the hell out of people. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it gets a little dystopian when you get to the point of shoulder-mounted drones hovering above the officers. <laughs> but uh, There have been shoulder cameras uh, that have been tried where there's a camera on the front and a camera on the back. Um, and mm. when paired with uh, like a, a glasses with the, the augmented reality glasses, then the officer could see if somebody's coming up behind them for officer safety reasons. Um, so the, the vendors are very creative and they'll find all kinds of interesting ways to try things. I think at this point, what has worked is really that chest-mounted camera. Yeah. Um, unless it's something like a, uh, you, know, you know, the riot gear where you have a hardened helmet and you can mount a, a sturdy uh, camera on the side of it. We've seen some of that as well. But by and large, it's I think it's going to stay that way. The cameras will get smaller, I think, over time, so it'll be less intrusive and a little easier on the on the on the cloth on the vest because the the mounting can be a bit rough on the on the vest, yeah. but I think for a while we're going to be on the chest mount and yeah, you do get the arms in there and you do get the swinging back and forth when they're running and things like that. But that's neat. Yeah. Like I, you know, overall, I think it's, it, it's a good technology. I think it's going in a good direction. Um, in your own opinion, do you think right now as it stands, is it, um, is it a very useful technology? Has it proven useful in uh, any real way? Well, uh, I'm, I'm not the expert, but I will defer to the experts. And there's a researcher named uh, Dr. Lum and her associates did a meta-analysis on 70 body camera studies. Um, their uh, analysis goes through and it basically summarizes from each of the studies that they reviewed what it was shown to have an impact on or what it wasn't shown to have an impact on. So uh, I can certainly provide you a copy of that after our, our yeah. discussion if you want. But what it does do is it reduces the number of public complaints uh, towards officers. Mm -hmm. Now, debate whether that's because the officer's behavior changed or whether frivolous complaints are, are being avoided through that, but it does show an impact on that. It dramatically reduces the amount of time to conclude an investigation into a complaint. Mm -hmm. So when you have that interaction, obviously the investigators uh, can see what happened much more easily than the usual go back and forth, do interviews, and see if you can find additional footage, etc. Uh, it's been proven unclear across 70 studies uh, about whether or not it reduces use of force. Okay. Um, so there are, some of those studies showed that officers use less force. Uh, the flip side is some of those studies also showed, showed that the officers uh, were assaulted more often. Now, 
you, there's a couple theories on that. One is that the officers are more hesitant to use uh, use of force to protect themselves because the camera's on and they're worried about it, or the the opposite effect. So it's unclear what the cause and effect is you know, on those numbers, but that's what's been found there. Um, the the last thing I would say is that the effectiveness on prosecution has been shown to be helpful. So where there is body worn video of either an, an incident or uh, the after effects of an incident. It has been shown to be useful in the prosecutorial process still in the U.S. because there's a lot longer time period there. Yep. Um, let's show that way. Inconclusive on does it change officers' behavior? Does it make them more professional? Does it do all of those things? Um, I think what what I what that study found and what I found through through reading a number of different studies is if you have a, a group of officers and a service that is professional, they will remain professional. If you have a yeah. group of officers professional. They will remain not professional. It, it, it the culture of the organization seems to override whether or not the cameras being. Yeah, yeah, and you know what? Like when you're bringing up stats and stuff too, and, and it's just like you're saying. I mean, you can two people can look at one one number and have two different interpretations of it. So, I and I I would kind of second uh, your point at the end there, where it's like I think officers have been doing a good job all along. We have a lot of stats where it shows, you know, 0.001% or whatever small fraction is of officer interactions involving like a use of force or a complaint. Um, I think the cameras aren't going to like reveal some great, uh, oh, they're, there's, they're all beating everybody up kind of thing that some of the critics I, uh, believe is happening. So I think it's useful technology. I think it has a lot of potential. Um I think the biggest component is the officer and public safety, uh, in my opinion, is when members are wearing them, at least they know like something's being captured that could potentially uh, help them articulate something later down the road. So, uh, yeah. Um, is there, and this kind of goes into like the database and information side of things, but um, other technologies that we have outside of the body cams, is there any big things coming kind of down the pipe when it comes to the tech side of policing? Yeah, I, I think you're going to see just like every other sector, uh, you're going to see AI, uh, and that's a buzzword, I get that, but you're going to see um, AI tools being created uh, for the policing and justice sector um, at, an, at an amazing rate. Mm. Um, big question about that is, are police agencies ready? They have a governance process for which types and how they'll be used. Um, recently at the IACP, International Association of Chiefs of Police, you have acronyms as well. Yeah. Uh, and there were at least 10 uh, new companies I'd never seen before that were uh, pitching AI-based uh, products. Hmm. Some of them around management, some of them around officer wellness, some of them around uh, better training pieces, things like that. You're, I think you're going to see a lot of a lot of that coming. Uh, the question is going to be which companies will be around five years from now. Um, yeah. Because there's they're all new. Everything is new in that space, and you don't really know who's going to be the winner of that space race, if you want to put it that way, for policing technology. Do you find, uh, well, just, I guess, with government processes, and they always got to put out things to tender, and uh, but I don't imagine police services or law enforcement in general are very early adopters of technology or very quick to jump into those pools? Yes and no. I'll put it this way. They, the Policing uh, over the last 20 years has had what I call shiny thing syndrome. Um, and it, it sounds intact. We refer to that as somebody goes to a, sh a showcase or they go to an event and they see a really flashy thing mm -hmm. and they want to bring it back and put it in place. Uh, so sometimes policing are early adopters for the wrong reasons. Um, mm -hmm. We'll see technologies come in, get adopted rapidly, and then two years later they're gone. So I think the, the successful police agencies are the ones that uh, go out. They try and identify companies that can work with them, and you let them behind curtain, as it were. So policing has always been sort of don't let vendors see what's going on in the background. And I think we have a bit of an opposite approach here where we're like, oh, no, no, open the doors, show them what the, your problems are, let them bring their expertise to the table. Yes. And cold. Um, and, it's, you know, Edmonton has the Community Safety and Wellbeing Accelerator through the foundation. So we try and do that. We try and bring in companies to solve the problems that we have in policing. 
the successful companies and the successful police services are the ones that will do that together. Uh, and they will be frank with each other about what's going well and what's not going well. And if it means a good, hard conversation about that person can't be involved anymore on your side and that one can't be involved on my side, then I think that's where we get to the sweet spot of finding the right technology for the right problem. Um, and then you have to make sure that you support it after it goes live. We have a, a nasty culture in policing uh, where we put in a new technology and we say, job done. And then we let it wither on the vine for the next three years. And then eventually we go, damn it, we need a new one of those. And we go buy another. So that's sort of the case in our in, in, in policing writ large. Well, yeah. And I'm thinking like you don't want to buy in. Like you're saying there's multiple players, new people. You don't know who's going to be there in five years. And government processes, bureaucracy stuff takes a while. So it's like if you buy in early, you're given millions of dollars. And all of a sudden, they're not there to support you in a year or two years. You're just left with this technology. Um, that's kind of where I was thinking of it from. That, that is that is a very real scenario. If you look at the records management systems in policing, in Canada, there's really only two. And there's a couple of new players trying to get into the market. But in the U.S., there are lots of police agencies that are now stuck on legacy records management systems because the companies are gone. Mm-hmm. They bought them, they place, and now they're gone. So it's um, you're right. It, it is a, a real problem. And we tend to do in government procurement the RFP process, right, is the way to go, um, which requires a lot of time and effort to do a full RFP. We've done things at Edmonton. Um, you know, we've had innovation agreements with uh, with TELUS, for example, that have helped develop technologies in our OICC, our Operational Intelligence Center, video ingestion, things like that. We can do that in policing. Um, you know, you just need to structure the agreements right, get out ahead of them, and, and then find a, a company that's stable but willing to innovate, I guess is the way I'd do it. So TELUS is a good example. We did that. We're do, trying to do the same thing with Niche, which is our RMS vendor right now. So. Um, it, it's a it's a dangerous one because you're playing with public dollars ultimately. So buying that brand new technology that may not be there, you're essentially gambling public, public dollars. Yeah. Well, and um, I'll come back to the AI topic, but uh, just stay, sticking with the RMS technology, uh, one of the, I think, the biggest complaints among frontline officers or anybody that uses RMS is you don't talk to other police services and the sharing of intel and information um very difficult and we're, we're trying to speed things up because we want to go fight crime and, and stop organized crime and they're very coordinated but when we're looking at like how we talk to each other uh i don't think the public necessarily knows like not everybody's on the same systems but even when you get something from another service sometimes it, it almost looks like it's in another language because you don't know how to read their document or it doesn't come out quite the way you would ask for it. Um, how do we kind of get, are people moving, first of all, toward uh, a common system? And then second, I guess, is why aren't we there yet? Yeah, you're you're bang on. I think people have this idea that it's like CSI where they call up the computer and they can see every piece of policing data across the country. Uh, that's just not the case. Uh, there are sharing systems, as you know, a, a CPIC for sharing criminal record information. Um, there are systems where the RMS talk to other RMSs called HIP. It used to be called LEAP, but it's Police Information Portal. Um, that's dependent upon each agency saying, yes, we're going to put our stuff on there. Uh, so we do. Almost all the, all the services in, in Alberta do do that. Uh, but it is a, you know, a, can I have access to this? Yes, you can type of a process through the system. Um, the the issue you're talking about, about I'm able to read their reports, is, is very real. Every service has their own format for how they write their investigative reports, uh, how they do their address conventions, how they do all of their coding, other than the things that stats can and, yes, requirements are standard. So it's a very real uh, thing. And a lot of that's driven by uh, prosecution's offices, how they want to see the disclosure package, how they want to um, receive that information. Uh, in Alberta's context, uh, all but one police agency are on the same system. We are of different versions, though. Uh, there's, we're on the latest iteration of it. I think there's three other versions kicking around the province. Okay. Uh, so all but Medicine Hat are on the same same system that we are in Alberta, which has been a bit of an advantage for us in the IT area because we're working on getting more of those integrations between the agencies. 
Um, we can do either shared environments where we may host a smaller police agency, which means we have much easier sharing in Calgary, if uh, down the future, may host some of the southern ones, for example. But we're having those conversations, at least in the Alberta context, where we want to get to more integrated approach. And eventually, you may get to an approach like BC has, where you have one provincial system. Um, pros and cons, um, you, lose, you lose autonomy, you lose control when you do that. Flip side is you have standardization, you have benefits of cost reductions, perhaps. Yeah. Um, so we're that way. nationally. It's a bit of a hodgepodge um, between provinces uh, and between police agencies. Um, so start local and grow from there. We've been talking to Toronto and Peel about some of their bail dashboard information to see if we can share some of that and start to learn their technology. It's coming. It's a slow process, but it's coming. Yeah. Well, I don't imagine that's an easy process. <laughs> like, I mean, that's that might even be decades in the making. Even the Mounties, they run on two different systems. <laughs> so... It's just craziness. And uh, I'm glad you mentioned Calgary because I was going to name drop them too. <laughs> Say, you just can't play nice in the sandbox sometimes. Um, so maybe kind of back on the AI issue. I think this uh, this definitely scares a lot of people. And just talking about like deep fakes and, and different things in evidence. So outside of uh, literally recording where I am at every single second of every day, <laughs> I think people are kind of worried about that. Is policing kind of ready for this AI? Or are they starting to prepare for some of these issues or anything? You want the truth? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I don't think policing is ready for, I'll, I'll say the criminal side of AI. I think policing is getting near being ready for the, uh, the use of AI in an operational setting under appropriate guidelines. I think we're getting close to that. I don't think we're anywhere near prepared for uh, what we're about to face on uh, on the AI front in the criminal aspect. Um, so the internet brought cross-national crime to the table. This is bringing it to a whole nother level when you get to that because the deep fakes that you're having now and the the the, the emails you that people get for those romance scams and things where you'd see the spelling is weird and you go, okay, this yeah. is crap. Spelling is perfect now because they're using AI to craft the messaging. And when you talk back to that text message that you just answered because Naomi says hi, Naomi's now speaking perfect English. Yeah. If you get one of those messages and you engage it and you change to German, it will speak German back to you. So they're doing those same scams at mass scale using AI already. Um, we were in uh, a presentation of the IACP that the uh, U.S. federal government put on on this topic. And the, they demonstrated with video exactly what's happening on, they call them pig butchering scams. That's the, yeah. the phrase they use. They demonstrate exactly how it's done, and they have a small army of people running AI chatbots. Uh, and once they get to a certain point through that process, then the human takes over and tries to get the money out of the people that are dealing with. So uh, it's international investigations. Um, I don't think we're structured well, certainly not at a, at a in level to address these at the scale that we're going to see them over the next. So there's work happening. So I'm I'm not don't mean to be the doom and gloom guy, but it's uh. It's going to be a much a larger problem as you go forward. Um, the deep fakes, so the the false videos, you don't need much video nor audio of somebody to create those. If you have an hour's worth of audio, your podcast would be a good example. Yeah. Um, they, they take our images and our discussion here, and you can pretty much make uh, something in the realm of believability. Well, you know, yeah, and I, I saw a video where um, there were there was two guys on some stage presenting about that, and they had, I think it was three seconds of audio is all the computer needs now. And it can formulate an entire conversation with inflection, with, in, with tone, like just from three seconds. And it wasn't like a three seconds where they were up and down. It was like a pretty monotone, but it just takes it and it, it knows how to like give you those variations in your, in your speech. It was incredible. Um, and I, I don't think we've seen anything like Deep fakes in in coming up in evidence yet, but I mean you see it in social media where I mean there's a one about the World Economic Forum that's blown up right now where the guy tells off George Soros. It's just the speed with which all this stuff comes flying at uh, law enforcement. I think is one of the issues that they struggle with, um, and then also you have the public or, or certain groups or politicians are right away on the police like, "What are you doing about this? Why? What about this video?" 
I got to look into if that video is even real. Like, there's so much more that comes with this now. And I don't think people realize that. So, yeah, it, it, I mean, where where it's starting, I don't I don't know if we've had any in Edmonton, but the, certainly the, the grandparent scams where they have a snippet of the grandchild's voice and they generate that discussion. Yeah, that that one that we'll see very quickly here, I think. Um, so it, it, to be successful, we're going to have to partner with academia. Um, we're going to have to bring in private sector. Yes. Uh, the people helping these, these things are the academia. They are the private sector. They're the experts. Um, we need to partner with them, both in the detection and I think at some point in the investigative phase, uh, where they're providing a lot of that expertise. No different than tech crimes. The policing has done fairly well on the tech crimes front, but in this case, it's going to be a level of expertise that I don't know if we can train um, sworn members uh, to the point where they're going to be fully fluent. And if you do train them to that level, they're going to get snapped up by a private sector pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, well, and that's, you know what, you bring up a really good point. This is something I've talked about on here a ton, where police need to stop trying to do every single job. Like, we can send police officers to go and train in certain things. Maybe people have a background, like a prior job or degree in a certain field. That's one thing, but just taking a person and plopping them into being an analyst or taking a person and now your economic crimes, like a lot of these things are becoming so specialized. Do need a person who really has a mind for it, enjoys doing whatever the job is because <laughs> obviously motivation is a big factor, but also you need the person to have like years of a background in this um, especially as it gets more nuanced and, and kind of down these really crazy rabbit holes that things can go down on the tech side. Um, what are, you know, what are some of the solutions that are coming out right now when it comes to AI? Is there like any kind of AI busting tools or anything? Well, they're trying to pit AI against AI right now. You know, they're trying to look at can they develop AI detection systems that will detect AI made things. So that's a very live research piece going on in, in a lot of the, uh, the academic circles these days. And just, just on the academic piece, we, we do have two machine learning folks that work for us. Um, they did our, our patrol modeling for the 10 squad model. Um, they've done a number of different things around the resourcing. And they're working on some things for the automatic transcription of 911 calls and quality assurance and those kinds of things. Those people in those industries want to work on practical things. Um, I mean, there's some that will always want to research, but there's lots of people in the AI space or the machine learning space that want to be part of something that they see actual implementation of. So uh, it, it's interesting when you bring those skills to a problem that we have in policing or we have in technology or process, and you just sort of let them loose on it. They will come up with some very, very interesting ways to tackle the problem or, or different perspectives, certainly. Uh, so it's how you partner with them, how you get them engaged. Um, you know, they're... They're in high demand. Um, so if they aren't doing something that's in, you know, engrossing to them or, or keeps them paying attention, they will go find somebody else who will give them something. And sometimes yeah. that's dollars and it's topic-based. Well, and, and so, yeah, kind of continuing on with the, like bringing in the private sector, you know, I think a lot of people see the government as like, they don't want to partner with them. Um, it, I, I think the Edmonton police, at the very least from what I've seen, they do bring in a lot of the private sector side. Could we do more? Is there is there more we could do on that and, and bringing in those specialists? Because certainly we can't do it all. Yeah, so we, we do a lot with actually universities. So we have uh, we have agreements right now. We're working with Waterloo. Uh, we're working with uh, University of Regina. We have uh, some work going on with Amy at the uh, uh, at U of A. Um, you know, Amy in particular, we're working with them on on a uh, an AI governance model for policing. So we've been working with them for about six months. Because I'm not going to stick my foot into a big messy pile of uh, AI manure, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, we need proper governance around what we're doing, and what we're not doing. So we've been working with them on that. Um, and quite often, if you're using uh, working with academia, you can leverage uh, federal funding. So my tax funding for uh, for mathematics and those types of things. So if we have some seed dollars for research, throw it into the my tax pot. You can double or triple the money that you have available. Get research grants, get students. Um, so it's a way to spend the government government dollars, as you put it, the 
the, the EPS budget more wisely um, and get two for one dollars or three for one dollars, depending on what you're working on. Yeah. Um, so you can do that private sector wise um, through the accelerator models and things like that. We, we can do that or through innovation agreements, um, creative, creative procurement exercises, I think, is the, the way to approach it. Um, RFP is always going to be there. If you're buying something, have a very defined need for an RFP is great. If you're trying to build the next thing, RFP is not going to work. You need to have a little bit more creativity in it. Okay. Um, maybe as, uh, as we're kind of coming up to the end of time, I want to make sure we get this topic in. So talking about the ch- supply chain security and with all this tech, um, we've seen recent court cases of talking about Huawei, uh, the 5G networks, and people are worried about where chips are coming from. Uh, I know you brought up the consumer electronics show a couple of times. And I didn't know that they had a whole, it's like a whole government law enforcement component to that. Uh, it makes sense. I just never thought of it. <laughs> but uh, I imagine that would be some mind blowing stuff you get to see there. But the things you learn, um, when we're talking about the supply chain security, where chips come from, is there, you know, I don't know, malware or something on like chips or is it programmed so it's instantly sending information back to someone? Is this a thing that's ever come up in municipal policing? Have you ever heard of this? I imagine it's in spy agency things, but when it comes to municipal police, is there anything? Well, have I ever heard of it actually taking place in municipal policing? No. Does it has it? That's a good question. I'm not sure it hasn't. Um, hmm. well, it, you're, you're, the one on CES, it, it, you're referring to as the GBEF. It's, it's a sort of a, a, a partnership with CES. Um, in there, the, the present activities that are happening in the procurement space or uh, policing and public safety and security, uh, federal as well, is the ability to source the, tra- the every chip in every device, where it's coming from, which companies are coming from, which subsidiaries are buying these things from, uh, to avoid buying them from certain countries. And then you're seeing now chip manufacturing be moved back to places like the US or the Netherlands or, or outside of the Chinese. Production cycle, yeah, um, because of those concerns. So on chip spyware or those types of things, and even if you look at the U.S., even in the case of the U.S., if you look at a number of years ago uh, with the Iranian power place, uh, they took down their 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 power generation based off of the equipment that was in the, in the, there. So it's not just one country; it's all countries need to be aware of where the technologies that are procuring are coming from. Yeah, uh, you got to be aware of. Uh, uh, if you can, write down to all of the pieces of that device that you're going to be buying. So if we are buying, let's say, a drone for some reason, we need to know where the avionics chips are coming from. We need to know where the camera chips are coming from. We need to know where all those components are coming from, other than just the brand name on the box. Yeah. So I think we'll, we'll see in government procurement and particularly in safety uh, agencies, I think we'll see a much more stringent um, supply chain management approach coming do we even have to worry about that even just in the software that we use? Like if, if it was like the RMS systems or any other stuff we have, because it was surprising to me on some of the articles I read that the like when you bring up drones, and uh, I think it was the article you sent me, and just the things a drone alone can capture, like if it's flying over something, it's, it's taking pictures or it's capturing Wi-Fi signals, but like uh, the software, like maybe in the background, Things are getting sent to some other country or, or organization that we don't want it to go to. It's possible. Um, I think it, yeah, we monitor traffic going in and out, right? So internet traffic or, or going out the world. Certain jurisdictions have laws that say data from tech companies, private companies like China has laws that say information must go to the government. Um, if you look a number of years ago, the Patriot Act in the US, um, all Canadian policing agencies must post in Canada in the cloud, primarily because of the Patriot Act and the concerns we had about the U.S. government's uh, approach to the data sovereignty. Mm. Um, well, I, I think it is a very real discussion. Um, will we know if there's something in the software? I think right now the concern uh, is less about embedded spy in the software. It's more about um, flaws that are discovered in software or security tools that are known immediately by uh, bad state actors and things like that. So if there's, in China's a good example, if, if there's a Chinese software company that has a, a flaw or finds a flaw in any software they deal with, 
they're required to provide that to the federal government. Mm -hmm. So you may have, they discover a flaw in a piece of software we use, that's something the Chinese government would know. Then you run into what we call a zero day uh, issue where we can't patch it because we don't know it's there until after somebody else has already done something bad with it. So it's uh, it's a very real scenario. That's why we have um, in policing multiple layers of security and we do run devices that are constantly monitoring for intrusions and constantly monitoring for inappropriate access to things. So when you're dealing with well, the most private Intel type in data, it needs to be obviously secured uh, heavily. Um, the type of things they're trying to get into these days uh, are more on the utilities and that space. So if you can take down utilities, if you take down the banking systems, yeah, that's where it cause mass disruption. Going after police services looking for information usually. Going after infrastructure is trying to cause a disruption. One, uh, I think I said this on the last podcast they did, Gary Clement, because we were talking about money laundering and fraud and, and some of the stuff the banks do. And I was like, well, and people wonder why their banking fees are so high. You know how much money they put into uh, security and making sure people aren't stealing your money? Like, everything costs a lot of money. Not, And I said on there, not to be super sympathetic to the banks. They make a lot of money. But uh, I don't know. If you don't like it, buy their stocks. Maybe get a dividend or something. <laughs> so That's Banks are interesting because they, they do spend a lot of money looking for abnormalities and those things. But at the same time, they don't report every crime that they come across to the police. Yeah. Uh, so if you get fraud, uh, they take that loss or they will absorb that loss. Please don't get a report from that. Mm. So it's, it's an interesting uh, there's They do put a lot of money, to, but there's also that loss, the shrinkage that they're dealing with there too. Yeah. Um, maybe last question I'll ask you here just is, is there a list or, um, I guess it'd be a list, but uh, is there a list or a database that says, like we won't deal with these companies for security reasons or anything. Like I know, you know TikTok was moved, removed from all government uh, phones. Lots of people still use it in their personal phones for whatever reason. But is there somewhere that like if the EPS wants to get a program or a new technology, do they consult this list first and say, oh, I'm not talking to you anymore? We don't, have a, a, we don't have a preset list. What we do do is any new technology we look at, we do a security assessment of it. Um, so okay. we have a protocol security assessments. That includes where it's hosted, where the company's from, all of those other things, along with what it has, to, how, it, how it talks to the internet or how it talks to other systems. We do a full assessment of them. Um, if we find things we're not happy with, then we engage with that vendor and say, you know, this doesn't cut it, this doesn't cut it. And if they can't change that or aren't willing to, then we don't entertain their product any longer yeah. you know it it i don't know if you could ever maintain a fully complete list of don't work with these folks work with these folks um other than right now you know if you're looking at data residency and stuff it's got to be in canada for us if it's on canada we're probably not dealing with it okay well um just at the end of our hour here i want to give you the opportunity to just let people know how they can uh reach out to you or find your work or connect with you uh, any social media accounts or wherever you like? I keep it pretty light on the social media accounts, but uh, I'm always here at the Edmonton Police Service. If anybody wants to reach out for uh, some contacts or have a conversation, I'm happy to do that. Um, on social media, I'm more of a watcher and less of a poster, but that's yeah. uh, working in policing, I think. Great. Uh, say thanks for coming on. I'm just going to remind listeners if they can give a rating, a like, a share, uh, spread the message out there. So. Uh, help the podcast out. And uh, yeah, thank you for coming on today, Ron. Thanks for having me.